you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And as you do, I'll let you know we had a little excitement in the first service. Somebody passed out. And it was not a movement of the Spirit. It was a movement of their blood sugar. So if you see somebody pass out today, and you're just for your, if you're a guest today, we are not Pentecostal. And so they probably need medical attention. So please give that to them. Don't get around them and say hallelujah. But that's what happened in the first service. So we'll see what happens today. So you never know what's going to happen here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. They are okay, by the way. Uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 11, so if you'll turn there, and we are going to look at verse 7 this morning. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that uh, we are talking about faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is probably the more famous chapters in the book of Hebrews. It's where uh, we see the hall of faith, we see this commendation of faith, we see really a walk through the Bible and where we see evidence of faith. And so you may have noticed already that we've simply been walking through the book of Genesis in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, you see it begins there with creation. We see that in the first three chapters of Genesis, and that's what's mentioned in the first three verses of Hebrews 11. Uh, then we see Genesis chapter 4, which talks about Cain and Abel. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, where we see Enoch, and both of those were mentioned in our text last week. And then as you continue in Genesis, in the creation account, uh, you get to the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, and that's where we are in Hebrews 11, 7 today. And so uh, essentially the writer of Hebrews is just walking chronologically through the scripture and pulling out for us examples of biblical faith. Now, if you've not been with us, it's important that we make a distinction that we've been talking about, uh, that there's a difference between blind faith and biblical faith. Oftentimes people associate uh, our faith with blind faith, a faith that needs no evidence, a faith uh, that needs no support, but that's not what the scripture calls us to. It calls us to a biblical faith. God calls us to trust in him, uh, to trust in the reliability of his word and his testimony, and there is much evidence for our faith in the scripture, which is what the writer of Hebrews is leading us through. And he's saying, listen, you, you need to have biblical faith, and let me show you example after example after example of what this faith looks like. And so we come now to verse 7 and the example of Noah. So we're going to read that, but to put it in context, I'm going to read the first few verses of Hebrews 11, and then we'll move down to verse 7 and add a reverence for God's word. If you're able to, if you would go ahead and stand as I read the scripture for us. This is what God's Word says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was made not out of things that are visible. And then we go down to verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. You will pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word and your testimony. I pray that you would help us today to believe that word and to believe that testimony. And, Lord, that you would expose in our own hearts where there is a lack of biblical faith and that you would call us to trust in you and to obey your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. Well, Genesis chapter 6 through 9 records for us this catastrophic event in biblical history where God brings judgment on the wickedness of man and floods the earth and preserves a remnant. He preserves Noah and his family, seven others with Noah, uh, along with animals. It's an event in the scripture that uh, people want to discount at times. There are many who come to the Bible and, and feel that to believe that there was some type of worldwide flood, that, that just seems rather unreasonable. And yet, when you study cultures and civilizations and people groups, in the remotest parts of the world today, you find there's this common thread that so many of them have a flood story and a flood account. There are literally hundreds of stories that say there was some type of catastrophic, catastrophic event in which the earth was flooded. Now, I'm not going to go through hundreds of those today, but just so that you might see this theme, I want to point out a few of them to you. For example... Among the Native American Indians, there are a number of legends about a catastrophic flood. One, uh, one tribe talks about a man named Montezuma who had a friendly coyote, and he survived this flood by making a boat and putting on this boat animals and plants. And when he finally landed on top of a mountain as the floodwaters went down, he, he sent out this coyote to see how much land was accessible. In Peru, there's the legend that many years before there were Incas in the world, all the people were drowned by a great flood. There was a remnant that survived, and it's from that remnant that we now have all of the existing races. Now, the Mexican flood tradition talks about a man who saved himself, his family, and some animals by floating on a raft. He wanted to see if there was land anywhere, so this story goes that he sent out a vulture, and that vulture did not return, and so later he sent out a hummingbird, which came back with a branch that had a green leaf on it. Now, the natives of Alaska tell the legend of, a fa of the father of their ancestors, uh, who was warned in a dream that a flood was going to destroy the earth. So he built a raft on which he saved himself, his family, and all kinds of animals. Now, according to this Alaskan legend, uh, these animals could talk, and they were on the raft so long that they began to complain about how long they were on there. Maybe they were saying, how much longer, as we might hear today. And so uh, they were cursed when they eventually found dry land, and their ability to speak was taken away. So if you hold to Alaskan folklore careful about complaining about the length of the sermon today. Uh, the Hawaiians uh, say that in the old days there was great wickedness on the earth, but one man was found to be righteous. His name was Nua. Uh, Nua uh, built a great canoe and filled it with plants and animals to escape this great flood. But the flood came and the flood went and then he saw the moon for the first time and he decided that, that he should worship the moon, and, and Cain, who he believed to be the moon god. But according to this legend, Cain was offended that he was being worshipped, so he came down on a rainbow to Nua and confronted him. Nua apologized, and Cain went back on the rainbow to the moon, but he left the rainbow as a symbol of his forgiveness. The Hindus of India tell of a man who built a ship along with several others to survive a great flood, and that a fish threw the boat to ground on top of a mountain in the Himalayas. 
They also tell that this man later got drunk with his two sons who took care of him afterwards. In recent years, linguists have identified remote tribes that live today and places on our earth where they've been untouched by modern civilization. Tribes that have had no access to the outside world for centuries, and they have found among these tribes they have their very own blood stores. It would seem that something catastrophic took place in the past, and everyone's been trying to explain it. In fact, one historian wrote it this way, that the destruction of nearly the whole human race in an early age of the world's history by a great flood appears to have so impressed the minds of the few survivors and seems to have been handed down to their children in consequence with such terror-struck impressiveness that their remote descendants of the present day have not yet forgotten it. It appears in almost every mythology, and it lives in the most distant countries among the most remote tribes. And friends, of course, we who believe in the authority of God's word, we know what this event is that so many speculate about. Because God has revealed to us in his word in Genesis chapter 6 and following that there was a catastrophic event, that there was a great flood, that there was a remnant that survived. And it's not just in Genesis that we read about this. Noah appears in 17 other places in the scripture outside of the book of Genesis. Most notably, our Lord Jesus in the Gospels talks about Noah and the ark and the flood. Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 24 about his return and the day that he will come back. And he compares it with Noah and the ark and the flood. Jesus says this in Matthew 24 beginning in verse 37. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Jesus believed in a literal Noah, a literal ark, and a literal flood. And so we need to be careful that we do not discount what this scripture explicitly teaches us, especially in light of passages like Hebrews 11, where the writer of Hebrews is saying, not only should we not discount Noah in the flood, we should learn from Noah in the flood. And we should learn from Noah's faith, because Noah stands out to us as an example of, of what biblical, genuine, saving faith is. And so what I want us to do in the remainder of our time this morning is, is look at five things that we learn about biblical faith as we consider Noah and his testimony. Beginning with the first point there in your outline. Number one, biblical faith heeds God's warnings. Biblical faith heeds God's warnings. Notice verse 7. Noah, being warned by God concerning these events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And so you know the story in Genesis 6. God warns Noah. We read there in Genesis 6 and verse 13. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
And so this warning comes from God that such wickedness has prevailed, that he is going to now bring judgment. And Noah received this warning, and we see that by faith, he heeds this warning. But this was not a new warning. We see from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, great rebellion. And we see how that rebellion spreads and goes down through the generations. The last week we looked at the example of Enoch in Genesis 5. Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. And Noah's great-grandfather Enoch was a preacher of righteousness. And if you remember, as we looked at Jude 14, Enoch was one who was preaching to a wicked generation their need for repentance. He was one that was preaching to them a warning about the coming judgment of God. And so this warning had been there generations before Noah and had been handed down to Noah and now God gives this warning again. It would have been tempting for Noah to think, well yes, God's warning is true, his judgment is true, but is it really going to come now? I mean, I know God says he's going to do this and I believe that God's going to do this, but, but is he really going to do this in my generation? Is he really going to do this now? See, friends, that's the temptation that we are often faced with when it comes to the warnings of God. When we read the scripture where God warns about sin and the consequences of sin, and yet what do we often say? Well, was God really going to bring judgment now? When we read about the warnings related to the return of Jesus Christ, where God comes and when Jesus comes in judgment, when Jesus comes to return those who are his to a new heaven and a new earth, and oftentimes, what do we say? But yeah, is that really going to happen in my lifetime? We read in the scripture that this is how we are prone to think. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Speaking of the return of Christ. For ever since the Father fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so our temptation is even when we're in church and even when we're looking to the scripture and even when we're considering a real literal return of Jesus, our temptation is to look around the world and say, yeah, but things are kind of like they've always been. Yeah, sure, Jesus is coming back, but, but is he really coming back soon? Noah could have easily discounted what God was saying to him, believed that judgment was coming, but thought, well, well that's probably not coming anytime soon, but notice what Noah does. Noah responds in reverent fear. Noah pays attention to God's warning. Noah has faith that God is going to do exactly what God said he would do. He believes this warning and he responds to it. Friends, do you believe the warnings that God has given you? And if so, how are you responding to those warnings today? God warns us very clearly about sin, about the consequence of sin, the question is, are we attentive to those warnings? Are we paying attention to those warnings? Or are we dismissive in light of those warnings? Biblical faith heeds those warnings. Biblical faith pays attention to those warnings. And biblical faith lives in a response to those warnings, which we see here in Noah's life. And that brings us to the second point. We see that biblical faith obeys God's instructions. Biblical faith obeys God's instructions. So not only did Noah pay attention to God's warning, it says also that he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Hey, he paid attentive care to what God told him. So in Genesis 6, 14, God says to Noah, 
I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm going to wipe these folks out. I'm going to wipe everything out. But I'm going to preserve you and a remnant and these animals through the ark. And then he gives very specific details about what that ark needs to look like. And the scripture tells us in Genesis 6.22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, if we don't stop and consider the magnitude of what God was commanding, you know, we, we, we miss out on the glory of God because what, what God called Noah to do was to build this massive structure in order to save man and to save this animal kingdom. And we happen to live at a time in salvation history when people have attempted to make replicas of Noah's Ark. In fact, some of you have been to the Ark Encounter just up the road in northern Kentucky. You can see a replica of what it looks like to, to build, as best we understand these biblical measurements, a replica of the Ark of Noah. Now, there are details we don't know for certain about the Ark, so if you go there, there's some speculation, but, but the massive size of the structure itself is overwhelming when you see it, and it's very much in line with what the Scripture said the Ark was to be. And so God gives Noah these specific instructions. He tells him in today's measurements that this massive structure was to be 510 feet long. That's one and a half football fields. You, you could lay three space shuttles nose to tail on top of these dimensions that God gave Noah. And he said the ark was to sit 50 feet above the ground to the roof of it. That's in modern terms about a four-story house. And then when you put all those measurements together, you find that the ark had the capacity to store about 450 modern-day semi-trailers. Now, again, just to put this in perspective, a semi-trailer could hold about 250 sheep. That means that the ark that God describes and tells Noah to build would have the capacity to hold about 120,000 sheep. It's an amazing thing, and I, I refer you to the ark encounter to see that, but what we see here in the Scripture shows us that God gave these tremendous instructions to Noah and Noah's faith that he responded to those instructions, that he did what God told him to do. He, he was faithful and obedient to build this massive thing God had called him to do. Now, in our context today, now God in the revelation of the Scripture has not told any of us to go out and build an ark, but he has told us a lot of things. That God's Word is full of instruction to believers. And we are given the command to obey those instructions. And, and so we are called to obedience as well. So biblical faith obeys God's instructions. And the first question that might come to mind is, well, which instructions? <laughs> There's so many of them. And there are. I would encourage you to start with walking through the Sermon on the Mount and, and walking through what Jesus calls us to in Matthew 5-7. through 7. And what you find as you read through the Sermon on the Mount are all these calls to obedience that should prompt us to ask questions about our obedience. For example, these are just a few questions I wrote down as I read through the Sermon on the Mount. Are you sharing the light of the gospel with others? Are you seeking peace and reconciliation with people who have wronged you or who you have wronged? Are you turning from temptation and purging your life of anything that might cause you to stumble in sin? Are you upholding the biblical covenant of marriage according to God's design and God's plan? Are you a truthful person? Is your yes a yes and your no a no? Do you give to those in need? Do you love your enemies? 
do you pray for those who persecute you? Are you seeking to live for God's glory or for your own glory? Now, these are all questions that come from direct commands of Jesus, of what it looks like to be a Christ follower. And we need to have the integrity to look to those instructions and ask the question, are we seeking to walk by faith and walk in obedience to what God has called us to do? Because biblical faith obeys God's instructions, His commands. Number three, biblical faith believes God's promises. Biblical faith believes God's promises. And so notice again verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And so the writer of Hebrews is pointing out for us, Noah was being told about something that was to come in the future, but he's also being told about something that had never taken place in the past. That there was no reference here for Noah. I mean, think about that for a second. So many of the things that we're called to do by faith, we can look to God's Word and find examples of. So many of the things that God tells us to do and not to do, we can look to the Word and we can find, well, here's what's happened happens when you do this, here's what happens when you don't do it. We, we can look around at testimonies around us in people's lives. And yet God was calling Noah to something that was to come in the future that he'd never seen, and that he'd never experienced anything like it in the past. He'd never seen anything the size of this massive structure that he was called to spend years of his life to build. He'd never experienced anything about like a cataclysmic flood. In fact, there's a pretty good chance Noah, because of where he lived, had never even seen a large body of water. And yet God called him to build this massive structure that would stay afloat when he flooded the earth. This is a picture for us of biblical faith. This is what the writer of Hebrews reminds us of in that very first verse when he says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What we see here is that Noah believed the promises of God and he held firmly to the promises of God. Friends, do you today hold firmly to God's promises? Now when we talk about God's promises, it's kind of like talking about God's instructions. Well, which ones? <laughs> the Bible's full of promises from God. And sadly, what I find often is as Christians, we sometimes hold on to things that God never promises us in this and we completely ignore those things that he does. So, so which promises? What, what do we need to hold on to? We need to hold to all of them. But I think fundamentally for the believer, we start with holding on to the promises that are made to us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And what does the gospel teach us? It teaches us that we all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And that the wages of that sin is death. Romans 3.23 and 6.23. The gospel teaches us that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then we receive this great promise in Romans chapter 10. If we will confess Jesus as Lord and if we will believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And all who call on the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13, will be saved. That is a promise that we are to hold on to. And why is that so important? Because there will be days, and there likely in your life have been days, 
when you won't feel so safe. There are days that you will lay your head on that pillow and you will consider what has taken place and you won't feel very sanctified. There are times that you will walk into this church and you will sing about the gospel and you will believe in the gospel and you will celebrate the gospel and you will walk out of this church and you will cuss your neighbor and you will cuss your family members and you will cheat on your taxes and you will not operate with integrity in business deals and you will be unfaithful in a whole myriad of ways and you will lay your head down at night and you won't feel very there's just sometimes when you're going to suffer and you're going to struggle and you're going to be overwhelmed with sickness and with grief and despair and you're going to be tempted to think, Lord, if you really love me and if you really saved me, then why would you allow this in my life? And friends, it is in those moments that we need to be reminded that our faith does not rest in our circumstances that our faith does not rest in our emotions, and that our faith does not rest in our failures. Our faith rests in Christ and in Christ alone. Our faith rests in the promises of God's Word. Our faith rests in passages like 1 John 5 that tells us if we have the Son, we have the life, and if we do not have the Son, we do not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, so that when temptation comes, and when the enemy comes, and when your old flesh comes, and you hear these lies in your ears saying, well, a saved person wouldn't think that, and a saved person wouldn't do that, you hold on to the Word of God. It is a promise. And God is faithful to His promises, even when we struggle the most with our faith. We see that a biblical faith is a faith that believes these promises and rests in these promises. We also see point four there, that biblical faith exposes the unbelief of others. It exposes the unbelief of others. We continue in verse 7 and read, By this, his faith, by this he condemned the world. And so this, this is a reference to what we just read, that this faith of Noah, this belief of Noah, this trust Noah had in God. And because of this belief, this trust, this testimony, the Word tells us that there was condemnation brought on others. Well, how does that work? Well, it's a picture here of how light exposes darkness and how darkness loves to stay in darkness. It's a picture here of what the light of the gospel does to an unbelieving world and how an unbelieving world responds when they see the light of the gospel. I think about this in terms of my own testimony and what I've seen in the testimony of many others. I was 17 years old, as I've shared before, a freshman in college when I came to faith in Christ. My life up to that point was not one that sought to please God or glorify God. I was pleasing my flesh. And after I became a follower of Jesus, there are many things in my life that radically changed. And I still would spend time with my unbelieving friends. I'd spend time with the people I'd known up to that point something I noticed very quickly, that when I stopped doing the things they were doing, they weren't very comfortable with that. Now, we typically think about this in terms of peer pressure. 
when everyone else is doing something and we're not doing it and they want us to do it. So friends, I believe according to Scripture, the pressure was on them because now I was walking in the light. Not perfectly. I was stumbling, but I was seeking as best I understood to walk by faith and not by sight. And as I was doing that, I was stopping a lot of things I'd done before. And the people I was with felt pressure. Because darkness loves darkness. And light exposes the darkness. And so when I started talking about Jesus Christ saving me and Jesus Christ redeeming me and I'm not going to do this anymore because of Jesus and, and now I desire this, I desire Jesus more than I desire what I used to do. Well, that brought pressure on my unbelieving friends because that brought conviction on my unbelieving friends. What we see here in a picture of Noah's life is a tremendous pressure that's brought on an unbelieving world. What we see here is one who's walking in the light, and that light exposes the darkness around him. And so we need to be aware that this is what the light of the gospel does. And let me say for a second, for young people here, people who are students, you're in school, and you're probably among a lot of unbelievers. Know this. If you are truly seeking to walk with Christ, if you are truly seeking to walk according to the world, you are going to look like a freak. You are going to stand out as different. And you are going to feel an enormous pressure to conform to the lost world around you. Know this. They are the ones that feel the your attempt to walk with Christ is bringing shame and bringing guilt and bringing conviction on those around you. And that's going to mean that there's going to be some people who just don't want to be around you because they don't want that conviction. But what it also means is that by the grace of our Lord Jesus, that conviction will lead to the repentance of some. That there are some who will see that light of the gospel in you and hear that light of the gospel in your testimony and that will lead them to repentance and to faith. And now you don't have this one light, you've got two lights. And then that light grows to others. And that light overcomes the darkness. And so be encouraged. Stand firm. Walk by faith, not by sight. And what we see is as we do that, as we have that biblical faith, it will bring conviction. It will expose unbelief. You may get mocked. You may get lied about. You may get persecuted, or you may have people just say things about you that, that aren't true at all. People who, who look at you as if you think you're better than you. Now, this is an expression that we don't use so much anymore, but how many of you ever ever heard the expression of someone being a, a goody two-shoes? Anybody? Okay. Goody two-shoes. I, I was actually doing some research on this, and, and I found people were looking, they wanted to understand what a goody two-shoes was, not two-shoes. Word, but, but goody two-shoes. We, we often use this expression, goody two-shoes, to refer to someone who thinks they're better than others, who, who, who seems to be kind of pious and think they're above everybody else. But, but actually, it's rooted in a story that doesn't tell us that at all. Now, that phrase, goody two-shoes, uh, goes back to a, a children's story in London in the 1700s. And it was a story uh, about a poor orphan girl who was so poor she only had one shoe. And she was a little bit mean. She was miserable. There was nothing good in her life. And this benevolent man who had a lot of wealth noticed her condition and decided to go buy her a brand new pair of shoes. 
So he gave these shoes, these new shoes, to this orphan girl who never had anything more than one shoe. And as soon as she put them on, it changed her life. Because for the first time in her life, somebody showed her compassion and showed her kindness. And so in response to that act of kindness, she started trying to do good for others. She started to treat other people kindly. She did so much good for other people that she got the nickname Goody with two shoes. Goody, two shoes. That's a picture of how the gospel changes a life. We've received something so much better than a new pair of shoes. We've received a new heart, a new life, a new way to live, and it should so overwhelm us that it should radically change us. We should be forgiving people because we've been forgiven. We should show mercy because we've received mercy. We should show compassion because we've received compassion. Our life should look radically different. That's why when we get into that baptistry, the old person dies and the new person is brought to life. That's the picture of that. Because when I was 17 years old, the old Richard died. And a new Richard came to life. God gave me a new heart with new desires to please and glorify him instead of just please and glorify my sinful flesh. And friends, when the gospel truly takes root, when we have genuine biblical faith, and there is fruit of that faith, we may get mocked, and we may get persecuted, but along the way, to the glory of God, God will use our testimony and will use our walk to bring others to faith in Christ as well if we truly have biblical faith. And that leads us to the last point there in your outline, point five. We also see that biblical faith secures our inheritance. It secures our inheritance. Verse seven, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We're going to talk more about that righteousness that comes by faith as we walk through Hebrews 11. But for now, I want you to notice how it was Noah received this righteousness. How it was that Noah received eternal life. How it was that Noah received salvation. And it was completely by faith. Now that phrase, he was an heir. You think about it in our common context, an inheritance. An inheritance is bestowed by the benevolence of the one giving it. It's not earned by the merit of the one receiving it. You don't receive an inheritance based on what you've done. You received it based on the benevolence of the one giving. That's the picture we have in the gospel. It reminds us of what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. The gospel is the free offer of salvation. It is a gift given to us. We receive it by faith. And with that faith, we receive this inheritance, this future, this salvation, this righteousness. Our call, our response is to be one of trust and one of obedience. And friends, that's what we're called to this Lord's day. We're called to respond to God's word through trust and be obedience. Some of you are familiar with evangelist D.L. Moody. And he was a great evangelist in the late 1800s and as he would often do, as he would share the gospel at different revival meetings and different tent meetings, he would call people to repentance and faith. He'd call them to a response. He would ask them to, to stand up and speak. How are you going to respond to the gospel and to God's word? And there was one occasion in the 
late 1800s where he, he did this. He, he shared the gospel and he called for a response and there was one young man that was so overwhelmed by the grace and the goodness of God that he knew he had to stand and respond and yet he didn't know what he needed to say. He, he was scared, he was shy, he wasn't sure of himself and so as he stood there and tried to gather his words, he, he said, I'm not sure what to say so I'll just say this. I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. So the music leader at that particular meeting wrote down those words, trust and obey, gave it to a pastor friend who, who then wrote several stanzas to go with it. Stanzas that we're about to sing. But let me read them to us first. Consider these words, this response we're to have to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Let us do his good will. He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Not a burden we bear nor a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. And then he looks forward and says this, Then, in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or will walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Friend, do you trust God today? Do you believe the word he has given And if so, are you going to walk by faith in obedience to that word? The great news of the gospel is he doesn't call us to do these things in our own power. Jesus gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us to trust and empower us to obey. Will you receive?